I don't want you to think I'm, you know. It's not my phone. We have it safely into the hand of who it belongs to. Good morning. Good seeing all of you this morning. We had a great time at the 8.30 service. We're looking forward to what God will do here in the second service. Uh, as I informed them, uh, later today, we have, uh, you know, we just saw some good stuff with the, um, with the fall festival and uh, we're looking forward to that uh, a week ago. You know, God loves people. Wasn't it, wasn't it great to have the baby up here last week? Uh, a little baby dedication, little William, wasn't he cute? Uh, but um, later today, we have another uh, very good human interest moment. And that is, I'm doing a wedding at 4 o'clock, and Jorge and Alexis. And Jorge's sitting right over there. I did not even expect to see him this morning, but uh, I, know, I know his bride-to-be is getting her hair done and makeup and all that stuff right now, and I'll, I'll go home, grab my suit, get all this stuff, and then we'll get over there, and later today uh, we'll have a wedding, and that was the, it was the day y'all got engaged, right? Uh, last year, was it Christmas Day? That's pretty cool, right? So Christmas Day, that was the day they got engaged, and so today they'll be getting married. So uh, it's just kind of always good to see things in the family. We are one family and get to celebrate with the families, even though uh, all of you are not coming to the wedding. Some of you were not invited to the wedding. So uh, uh, that doesn't mean they don't like you. Uh, it means they have a budget. You know, that's what it really means. It means that this much money uh, in their young lives. So, uh, but they would, uh, they would gladly take any cards you want to give them. Uh, they're open to that, uh, but your prayers uh, are appreciated, and so we're excited to see uh, Jorge's family, most here from Puerto Rico and other places, uh, uh, Alexis from Kansas and other places, so uh, be thinking about them later today and be praying for them. And then next Sunday, I'm uh, going to step out of the book of Acts for one Sunday, and this is the message the Lord put on my heart. What in the world and in Israel is going on. So uh, invite a friend. Maybe they're wondering, what does all this mean? What is this rise of anti anti-Semitism that we see even in our own country, which is quite scary? Um, you know, what, uh, what, what do we make of this, what it looks like, eternal battle that takes place? It's not eternal, but it has been a long time uh, there in the Middle East. Uh, what is God doing? It's exciting to know that someday... Uh, Arabs and Jews will worship Jesus together in the millennium reign of Christ. And it's already happening in the body of Christ. The world doesn't seem to know all these things, but we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say from the beginning to the end, and I've got to fit it all in 50 minutes. So uh, that is next Sunday, and I hope you'll be here. Some of the things that Jesus had to say about this and uh, how we can be more informed. And things are, uh, we, we need to be praying for those that have suffered great loss, uh, those that have uh, died uh, either through terrorist attacks or those that have died uh, since the war has now begun, and there's many families that are grieving. But um, in the end, all of these things are not falling apart. They are falling together uh, because all this has to uh, proceed to Jesus' return, and uh, he's the only one that's going to bring peace on the earth. So we'll look at this next Sunday. And uh, the day after next Sunday is Monday the 30th, and I've got good news. Those modulars out there, which look kind of like a modular version of a 1979 Pinto. Um, <laughs> that's about what they look like. Um, but they're, it, it's like a Pinto that drives. It's functional. It can get you places. It works. 
but we're going to make it look like maybe a, uh, I don't know, uh, a 1999 Ford Taurus or something like that. And when we're done, uh, it'll be upgraded from what it currently is, and it's going to be quite the upgrade. We, uh, you know, we have a lot that needs to be done, but we contracted uh, a paint company and some guys that are going to do the work. Uh, we don't have some, well, we have some of the skills, but not the time. So uh, they're going to put the trellis around the bottom, which will have greenery. We'll, it'll be painted bright white. They'll have wood trim. Uh, they'll look really nice uh, compared to what they look right now. We've got like eight shades of color on them right now, and uh, they're different fades of gray and off-white and everything. So uh, within a couple of weeks, they will look transformed. We're excited for the kids. We're excited for the parents and the teachers. It'll look really, really nice. We added the walkway last year, and so when we're done, we've got some other. We'll put string lights in the uh, courtyard area. So we might not own much, but we're going to make what we do own look nice. So, um, so thank you for those that give. Your tithes and offerings are very appreciated. This is for our budget. Uh, for some big fancy churches, this is nothing big, but for us, it's a pretty big deal. So we appreciate uh, your giving, and we're looking forward to how it will look. So uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm really, really looking forward to it myself. And uh, the following, so that's um, Monday the uh, 30th, yeah. So then that same week, so next Sunday, I'm doing the, the message that I mentioned. Monday, the project starts. And it'll take a whole week for them to, they're saying, by the way, the walkway is going to get redone. Supposedly, they found a paint that can actually endure winter salt and 8,000 steps of kids' feet and stuff like that. I don't know, but, uh, but the whole week they need to do the sanding the power washing and the prepping and the caulking and all that good stuff. Uh, so that Wednesday, this, the uh, modules will be unavailable. If you're here Wednesday, this past Wednesday, when, when I was in the book of Joel, in Joel chapter 2, the Lord put this passage on my heart, call a sacred assembly. Well, we already fast and pray uh, the first Wednesday of every month. Uh, but what we're going to do, there's no children's classes. There's no classes of any kind. There's no teaching. Uh, if you're able to come that night, uh, bring a lawn chair. We will meet out in the field and pray outside under the heavens uh, to the Lord. And so if it rains, we'll be in here because I don't want anyone slipping and falling and blaming me because you got hurt. So if, uh, if it rains, we'll be in here. Uh, I got a little fired up Wednesday and said, we'll be out there even in the rain. But I was only, that was just a moment. We will actually be in here. I have those sometimes. Well, I'll get a little fired up. And if, it's, if it is raining, we'll be inside. I would do it, but I don't want the lawsuit for anybody else that gets, you know, breaks their ankle. So if it's raining, we'll be in here, but it looks like it's going to be decent weather as of now. So we'll be out in the field. And uh, it says in that passage that to bring the babies, bring the infants, uh, even if it was your wedding day, sorry about this, Jorge, you would have to cancel plans to get the sacred assembly was that big a deal that everything had to be stopped for that. So I hope you're able to come out with us uh, Wednesday night as we'll pray. We've never gone out there and just done a big prayer in the field, so we are going to do that. Lots of things to pray for. Israel, revival, many other things. So uh, with that, we've been praying for revival for a long time. We've been getting on our knees ever since the pandemic, and I think you'll see it on the 830 service. A few of you that were here in the 830 service, you saw uh, what I was speaking of. I think you'll see when we get into chapter 7, there's something that really struck me and touched me in the text about us getting on our knees to pray that I think it, it just underscores why this is precious to God. And uh, even though a couple times I've thought about, maybe, Lord, uh, we stopped doing this, the Lord's reaffirmed to me numerous ways, and again this week in my study, that this is something he wants us to do. 
And you just never know uh, what God will do with us just being obedient to small little things, right? Small little things. Uh, we'll be praying for our own nation. And as we've been praying for the countries around the world, today we'll be praying for Zimbabwe. Uh, if you're able to get on your knees, please do so. If you can't, you have bad knees, need to stay seated. Your doctor says don't ever do that. That's fine. Just pray with us silently. And then we'll get into Acts chapter 7 together. Let's pray. Father, as we just sung, you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, you're mighty, you're worthy, you're sinless, you are glorious. Uh, Lord, you are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of the full surrender of our lives, Lord. We are so thankful this morning for so great a salvation. Lord, forgive us if we've neglected it in any way. And we come before you, before we even intercede for others, we pray, Lord, that you would Wash us clean this morning. Maybe the attitudes of our hearts. Maybe there's covetous. Maybe we have our own idols. Lord, all of these things, we have blind spots we can't even see. We have sin that we sometimes don't recognize unless your Holy Spirit pinpoints it. And so we just ask that you would be gracious and wash us and purify us in this room. If we've been born again, Lord, we pray that you'd restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Lord, that uh, you would give us your peace and you would give us your rest uh, Lord, we, you give us eyes that see that the fields are white unto harvest as you saw Jesus. Lord, there's many that are more close to the kingdom than we would expect. We pray that we would see with expectant eyes. We pray for our country, Lord. We know that we have for many years now gone further and further and further away from you, Lord. The idolatry, the sexual immorality, Lord, uh, the violence, the vitriol, Lord, all the things that we see in our country, the bondage, the chains, the addictions, Lord, we pray that uh, you would open eyes. You'd bring a revival in our nation. Lord, you'd bring a turning back to God. Lord, we pray that it would happen in the pulpits in America. There would be an awakening of the church that is very, in many cases, Lord, lukewarm and asleep. And even our own lethargy in this room and lukewarmness, Lord, we pray that you would stir us and forgive us and, Lord, turn us back to you. Uh, Lord, we pray in advance for our sacred assembly on the first. We pray that uh, you would stir the hearts of your people here to come out and pray and And, Lord, you would use it in a mighty way. We pray for the nation of Zimbabwe, Lord. We pray that uh, they, too, would see many come to Christ, that revival in the churches that are there. We thank you for the people that are serving you and and bringing the gospel to that country. Uh, We pray not only for the nation of Zimbabwe, but around the world. We pray for the persecuted church all over the planet, Lord, that you would deliver our brothers and sisters. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem and Israel. We pray that, Lord, you would pour out peace on an area, Lord, even if it's a temporary harvest, Lord, we would, anything, Lord, that would change, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for praying with us. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We'll pick up with where we left off last week. We'll pick it up with verse 35. So we had read verses, uh, not only the latter end of chapter 6, Uh, We covered the end of chapter 6, and then we covered chapter 7 
all the way through verse 34. So we were looking, uh, when we left off, we were looking at the life of Moses through this message that Stephen was preaching. Uh, when we pick it up, we're still looking at the life of Moses. Moses is actually uh, probably the predominance of the message, or at least his time. Uh, but we'll pick it up with verse 35, reading verse 35 and 36. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, and after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Let's pray. Father, we ask again for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was resting upon and flowing through Stephen. Lord, I ask that that same Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus himself would rest upon me and flow through me. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would rest upon each person in this room, that you would speak by your spirit, that your word, Lord, would be magnified, and, Lord, we would hear what we need to hear, and, Lord, not just hear it, but be responsive, Lord, with obedience and surrender, and, Lord, that you would change and transform every life in this room, and especially, Lord, if someone doesn't know you, you would call them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We left off with Stephen, one of the seven chosen deacons that, as you know, was raised up to serve and assist the apostles, uh, who at some point in his ministry, God expanded uh, his ministry that, that included miracles and signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit did in and through him, as he had been doing through the apostles. And no doubt, Stephen had become a great student of the Word of God. Would you not agree? He's teaching much of the Tanakh or the Old Testament here through his own studies, but also Stephen's sitting under the apostles. He was sitting under their teaching and their tutelage. And somewhere along the way, he encountered the synagogue of the freedmen. Whether they came to him or him to them, we don't know. As we talked about last week, most likely they were freed Jewish slaves that had been set free from Roman households elsewhere in the Roman Empire. But these former slaves, they were now zealous for the law. More zealous than you cowboy and giant and charger fans are. You know, more zealous than that. And like the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they, these men in the synagogue, they saw the gospel message as blasphemy. They saw Jesus and everything about him as against the law that was given to Moses and the prophets. They refused to believe that Jesus was sent from God. Aren't you glad that you believe Jesus was sent from God? Changed my life. They refused to believe that he was sacrificed by the will of God, that he was raised by the power of God to be the sinless perfection for every person in the world that would believe unto salvation, which included the need of the high priests and the leaders and the synagogue of the freedmen, even the apostles themselves, they had to believe in Jesus. But in their desire to discredit the gospel and the doctrines being taught by Jesus and those of the early church, they had a dispute or maybe even several disputes with Stephen about the gospel and the scriptures. They had a debate with him. 
But they were unable, as we looked at last week, they were unable to refute the knowledge that Stephen had of the Scriptures and the wisdom that the Holy Spirit had given him. So they concocted, as you know, false witnesses, and they had Stephen arrested just like they did to Jesus. Then they placed him before the council just like they did to Jesus which is called the Sanhedrin. And then his face shone like an angel, remember? It shone like an angel. I've never seen that in my lifetime. I've never seen anyone's face shine like an angel, but the Spirit so came upon him in a mighty way. And he stood up and he started to preach and teach. And he started at the life of Abraham. Why Abraham? Because Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. By the way, Abraham also had a son named Isaac. He's the father of many Arab people as well. That's why God's going to bring all those that believe in him from every tongue, tribe, and nation together someday. But he starts with Abraham, then the patriarchs, then Joseph, who was the first deliverer he spoke of, and then the other great-grandsons of Abraham, which will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he moves to Moses, which is where we left off and where we picked up whom God raised up to be the second deliverer that Stephen talked about. But Stephen reminds his hearers that both Joseph and Moses were first rejected by their Jewish brethren on the first time they came to them. Remember that? Both Moses and Joseph got a stiff no thanks the first time they came. At first, their forefathers did not see that Joseph and Moses were sent by God. You see where Stephen's building this, right? You see where God had already painted the picture in advance. But these men in the council, in these synagogue of the freedmen, they were blinded to their own deliverance. And you and I run into many people in our lifetime that are blinded to their own deliverance. And as Stephen continues in his message, this will be the last sermon he will ever give on earth. He's going to pour it out. He is laying out that the same unbelief and the same hardness of heart that kept their forefathers from initially seeing the deliverers that were sent by God is now hindering them from seeing the deliverer of their souls, and that's Jesus himself. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning. A determined rejection and a heavenly reward. The mighty message of Stephen. This is a part two, if you will. Now we know that as Stephen continues this anointed message, dripping with the power of the Holy Spirit, this journey through the scriptures from Abraham, and ultimately he's going to get to Jesus, as we'll see in the text. He's speaking of stories. Think about the audience. He's, he's talking to the Sanhedrin. And uh, no doubt the scribes are there and other, other leaders, the synagogue, the freedmen are there. He's talking to men who know these stories inside and out that he's telling them. They know the moments in Israel's history. They know why Israel celebrates these moments. And he's speaking about men that they revere. They, they revere Abraham. They revere David. They revere Joseph. They revere Moses. But he's reminding them of the grave errors of the past that can't be overlooked. The other things that took place around those men, there were serious errors that Israel was guilty of, which we're going to read of this morning. And by the way, we can be in church and be seriously 
in error as well. Amen? Understand that these men, they've read the passages that Stephen is talking about probably hundreds of times. There's no one on earth that's read that more than the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This is what their life was, was the law, the Torah, the scrolls. And yet, because of their hearts, the most important truths have escaped them. And this entire message is a sobering reminder that you can read the law, you can know the law, you can study the law, and supposedly revere the law, only to miss the gigantic arrow that the law is pointing to is your need for the one who's above and perfected the law. Amen? Paul said in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. The law shows us we can't keep it. That we need a sinless Savior that is the only one that's ever kept the law. Nobody, understand brother and sister, nobody, not the high priest, not the apostles, not the synagogue of the freedmen, not Stephen himself, nobody, not you, not me, nobody is ever going to work their way to heaven. Do a good enough job. Church can't save you. Being here, well, I go to Wednesday night service. That's fine. Extra points, extra credit. No, nothing. Church can't save you. None of our works can save us. But Stephen presses on in his message, attempting by the grace of God to teach and to correct the thinking of men that I think you would agree These are men that do not like to be taught or corrected. And that's the audience he has, a group of men that don't want to be taught or corrected. That's his audience. It's a good reminder for us, we need to to remain teachable. Moses was teachable at 80, teachable at 120 even, when he finally uh, went home to be with the Lord. The older I get, I I say, Lord, I want to be more teachable, more teachable than I was 20-some years ago, more teachable than I was 30-some years ago. We need to remain teachable and become more teachable. The Holy Spirit has much to teach us. But back to these verses that we just read, verse 35 and 36. If you recall, back in the 13th verse, same chapter, chapter 7, verse 13, when Stephen was talking about Joseph, the brothers, he said that the, the brothers in his message, in his kind of history lesson through the scriptures, he said that the brothers of Joseph recognized their brother only the second time when he was revealed to them. But the first time they did not recognize him. Obviously they didn't recognize him as the one who was delivered when they threw him into a pit and then also took him to Egypt. They did not recognize him as the deliverer. But the, when they finally saw and it was real, revealed to them, then they did see him as the deliverer he always was. And then in verse 25, when Moses first came to his brethren and they were still in slavery, he writes, or Stephen says, it's written by Luke, but Stephen says they did not understand. They did not understand that Moses was trying to come and be their deliverer. And of course, Moses was disillusioned by it. They rejected him, or they just didn't understand at this point. So we see that, that blindness... And the inability to understand, both of those are problems. Blindness and the inability to understand God's revelation is a barrier to our flesh. 
all of us are born with a barrier to our flesh. Of We have some blindness and an inability to understand. And it wasn't just the brothers of Joseph. It wasn't just the brethren of Moses and the people in Egypt. But all people have this barrier. It's called our sin nature that is a blindness and an inability to understand. And we know then that God has to help us to see. And we know that God helped Moses to see and hear his voice there in the burning bush. Moses was just walking along. God says, I'm going to help you see and hear my voice. But even if God helps us, and I know he helped me in June of 1995 to hear his voice, and I got saved that day. Even if God helps us to see what by nature we can't see, we still have a choice and a responsibility to act by faith to what he reveals. Does that make sense? So we still have a choice. He says, I'm showing you this. You have to act by faith to what he reveals. In John 1.9, it says, the true light which gives light to every man coming in the world. So you'll meet people say, well, if God was really God, then he would just show the whole world. He says he has. Who are you going to believe? Yourself? This person's opinion? He says he's given enough light I don't, know, I don't know exactly how this works, and none of the rest of us do either. But God says he's given enough light in the conscience level to realize that we are a sinner and we need our creator. He goes on to say, speaking of the creator, he goes on to say, the Lord says, obviously it's two different writers, John is the writer of John, Paul's the writer of Romans, but in Romans 1, verses 19 through 20, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them even his eternal power and Godhood, so they are without excuse. No one will ever be able to stand before God and say, well, if you would have just shown me a little bit of light or shown me a little bit of who you were or shown me a little bit of who I am, God's like, I did. You're going to see later when we get into the end of this how visibly we see a illustration that not only does God show people but they literally refuse to see. Again, we have a choice. God says, I will show you where you're at. He could show, this is your, Joseph is your deliverer. Moses is your deliverer. But God gives enough light to every soul to come to him or to choose to resist him. I don't know, I, th I think you would agree that Adam and Eve had more than enough ample evidence that God loved them, Right? Eat of anything you want, except for this one tree. Which one do they want? That one. Eat anything you want. I'll walk with you in the cool of the garden. You'll never, have a, you'll never have death. You'll never have disease. You'll never have sin. I think I want that one. Because he gives us a choice. Stephen emphatically makes the point that the forefathers, not only did they not understand, not only were they blind, but it goes beyond being blind and not understanding. He goes on to say here in the first two verses we just read that the forefathers rejected Moses. Look back in your Bible, verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, that's on them. It wasn't just because of lack of understanding. They willfully rejected the one God sent and the witness he had given to Moses. Now later... Moses does some signs. Moses does some wonders. Moses does some miracles in Egypt that God does through him. And they do come to believe that he's sent by God. It's up on the screen in Exodus 4, verses 30 through 31. 
the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed. Moses comes to them. I'm Moses. I'm 80. I'm sent from God. No, you're not. I saw a burning bush. No, you didn't. I'm just paraphrasing. You know, that, uh, I, I, I'm coming to you. No, you're not. You're, you're the guy that uh, we sent away. And, and Moses, then he starts doing some signs. Oh, okay. Well, you, you are the guy, you know. Then they believed. It's interesting that Stephen did signs and wonders, and they didn't believe. At least at this point, when Moses did some signs and wonders, the people did say, okay, he really is the, the man sent by God. Pick it up with me in verse 37. We'll read through verse 43. This is the Moses. He continues, Stephen continues teaching about the life of Moses in that time period in Israel's history. So this is that Moses, verse 37, who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. He's quoted from the Old Testament. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our, uh, whom our fathers would not obey, but, here's the word again, rejected. And in their hearts they returned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. For this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hand, or the works of their own hands. And God turned and gave them up to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rapham, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Moses, near the end of his life, when he was getting near the very, very end of his life, it's in the end of Deuteronomy, he prophesied of another prophet to come. He said, he'll be like me. In other words, he'll be made of flesh. Because Jesus was going to come in human flesh. He will be like me, not like Moses who's imperfect, sinless, but he'll be flesh like me. He will be of your bloodline. That's what he was saying. He'll come from our people. He will be like me. But he's going to be a prophet that God would raise up from the people and that the people would finally hear or would need to hear and indeed, when Jesus finally comes, born in Bethlehem, at the age of 30, in his earthly ministry, he begins to preach and teach all over Israel. Indeed, all of Israel heard the voice of Jesus, who was from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. And Jesus was the prophet, capital P, that Moses was speaking of. Say, he will come, and him you will hear. The disciples heard and followed him, and many other people followed him. And Jesus' voice was heard all over from Upper Galilee all the way even further up into Tyre and Sidon and over into what is a modern-day Jordan all the way down into Judea. And his voice was heard all over, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember, he was preaching the same message that John the Baptist had preached. And then his voice was heard from the cross saying, it is finished and Father forgive them. They know not what they do. So his voice indeed was heard in Jerusalem, and all it reverberated all throughout Israel, and it still reverberates today. The disciples, who would later become the apostles, but at the first they were, they were the 12 disciples. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? 
After he fed the 5,000, which was probably more like 10, 12, 15,000 when you add women and children. But when he fed the 5,000, after he had performed that great miracle where they were all exhausted, and he takes a little bit of fish and loaves and spreads it until it feeds everyone, there's 12 baskets full left. This is what the disciples later become the apostles said. It's up on the screen. John 6, 14. They remembered what Moses said, and here is the proof of it. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Remember when the children of Israel believed in Moses? When he did the signs. Here the apostles, Moses said, I'm going to raise, God's going to raise a prophet just like me in the sense that he'll be made of flesh. He'll be coming from our, our bloodlines, but... He's the one you're going to need to hear. He is the prophet, a capital P. And so when Jesus did this great sign, he had done other signs, but for whatever reason, the light bulbs went off at this moment. They said, this is the one Moses was talking about. And indeed, they were right. It was the one Moses was talking about. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen, they don't believe Jesus is the one Moses was talking about. This is the whole problem. This is why Stephen is standing on trial, because no one else in the room believes that Jesus is the one that Moses was talking about. Now, he hasn't gotten to that point yet, but you can see where he's building. But Moses understood that his own life and his own ministry was ordained by God, that he was saved as a baby. Jesus was saved as a baby. Remember from uh, Pharaoh, then comes Herod. He was dedicated by his parents. Jesus was dedicated by his parents. But he understood that his life was ordained by God to be a prophet, but he said, he said he knew that this prophet to come was far greater, and his ministry would be far greater, and he wouldn't just deliver people from Egypt. But this prophet would be the Messiah, the one Israel desperately needed to hear, the one the world desperately needs to hear. By the way, Moses, so it says, uh, remember they said, uh, and of this man Moses, uh, we don't know where he is. Moses, on two occasions, went up to Mount Sinai, at the top of Mount Sinai, and spent 40 days twice, all alone with God. It says in chapter 34 of Exodus that he didn't even eat food or drink water. Now, I think you would all agree with me, this doesn't last, you don't last long in a desert without water. You can last a little while without food, but uh, 40 days and 40 nights Two times he spent on the mountain all alone with God. No one else in the history of the world that we know of has ever done this. Why God chose Moses? Well, you'll find out when you get to heaven, right? Some rabbis and scholars believe Moses was even caught up into heaven with God. We don't know this one way or the other. I'm just saying that there's some that believe that perhaps he was even caught up into heaven. And when you look at the detail that Moses came down the mountain, God like programmed in him. Uh, it's, it's, you can't remember a fraction of it, even if you read it a hundred times and he had it all so ornately laid out. We don't know. We don't know if he just stayed on the mountain, if God did take him up into heaven. Uh, it's possible though, I would say more than possible, maybe even probable, that um, God gave Moses a lot of revelation that he didn't even write about. Maybe Moses there with God already was seen through the providence of God. and through, Maybe he was seen that the Passover lamb, remember they had to put the blood on the doorpost before the exodus? Maybe God was already showing him that lamb is pointing to another lamb. 
because he spoke of the prophet to come. I don't know what he learned beyond what he wrote. We know he wrote the first five books of the Bible, but I'll tell you what, 80 days alone with God, you're going to have a volume of learning, right? (laughs) 80 days alone with God, 40 days and 40 nights, you would never be able to write it all. And I don't think he wrote even a fraction of what God had revealed to him. No surprise that, that it's Moses that's on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus along with Elijah just prior to him going to the cross. Moses was there to minister to the very prophet that he was prophesying about. Stephen goes on to explain that even though the people had believed in Moses, it's always hard to believe when you read it, they got tired of Moses. They thought he was. They needed, they needed, we needed a better leader, one that doesn't spend 80 days alone with God. They came to the point that they thought God had given them the wrong leader. We need a better one. That although Moses had been with God, although he had received the words of God, twice Stephen said they rejected him. And in verse 39 and 40, Stephen says they even, they even wanted to go back to Egypt, if not physically in their mind. They actually did say, we want to go back to Egypt at one time too. So they, they had this desire to go back to Egypt. I got saved, as I said, June of 1995. I don't want to go back to Egypt. I'm talking about the world. It's a picture of uh, what God's brought us out of. You know, 1995, on a Sunday morning, I would still have a splitting headache from a night at the bars. Now I'm preaching on Sunday. God has a great change of plans for you uh, and me and really does these kind of things. And so I wouldn't want to go back, but they did. They wanted to go back. And I'm not saying we don't all glance back. We do. Let's be honest. At times we all glance back. It looks great. Like Asaph in Psalm 73. It looks, looks fun over there. And God has to say, snap out of it. Why would you want to go back to the idols that I delivered you from? But they, uh, they did, and God was furious. I know God is love, but he also gets angry. That's why there really is a hell. There really is a price to reject his free gift of salvation. And when Moses came down the mountain the first time, remember what he was carrying? He had the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, and they were written by the very finger of God. It's the only thing that we ever know on the earth that was actually, actually engraved. I know Jesus wrote on the ground, but it was actually engraved by the finger of God. And Moses took the tablets. What did he do with them? He smashed them against the rocks there on Mount Sinai. And God was not angry with him. God was actually showing through a picture the, that God was angry that they, he had saved them. Remember, he not only got them out of Egypt, they took all the possessions of the land of Egypt. They had been given the gold, the silver, the tapestry, all of it. They had been, they had been brought through the Red Sea, and they decided, we don't like the food, we don't like the leader, we want to go back. <laughs> and we want to go back to idol. And they, they were doing very immoral things around the golden calf, and so Moses was infuriated on behalf of God, and he did not sin. It was much like when Jesus comes into the temple and he flips the tables. That Moses had a flip the tables moment that was ordained by God. And there is a time to get righteous anger in this life. It better has to be governed by the Holy Spirit. God gave the people up to their desires, so he said, you know, all those years in the wilderness, did you really sacrifice to me? Much of it was hypocrisy. We know that many of the, uh, it says their carcasses died in the wilderness because many of them um, were just going through the motions, and God gave them over to the desire of their heart. Generations of Israel would actually serve other gods, Molech and 
other gods that uh, aren't even mentioned here. But it's very sad when people that know the truth and have come to Christ go back to the world. Haven't you seen people in your lifetime that you used to know when they followed Jesus and today they want nothing to do with him? You're like, wow, I remember when that person would be in a prayer meeting with me. Now they want nothing to do with the Lord. Very sad to see people go back to Egypt. Pick it up with me, verse uh, 44 through 47, working our way through. Our fathers, verse 44, had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him a house. So here in verse 44 through 47, Stephen begins to speak of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a uh, temporary structure that could be folded up and taken from place to place throughout the wilderness, and it was constructed according to the design that God had given, and later it would be the same layout, if you will, of the temple itself, which would obviously be made of stone. But it was made according to God's pattern, which Stephen mentions here. And we know that the presence of God would come down as a cloud and rest upon the entryway to the tabernacles, a pillar of cloud that would descend upon the tabernacle, showing that God's holy presence was there, in the, and the tribes were all arranged all the way around the tabernacle. Now Joshua, who was Moses' assistant, who later will succeed and be the successor to Moses. And by the way, Joshua's name in the Old Testament is essentially the same as Jesus' name in the New Testament. Joshua, Yahshua in the New Testament, Yeshua, where we get so Jesus, just like Moses was a foreshadow of Jesus, Joshua is a foreshadow of Jesus. Joshua takes out the enemies of the Lord, so does Jesus. Joshua takes his people into the promised land, so does Jesus take us into the promised land. So you kind of see... Uh, that God was always foreshadowing the prophet to come, the Messiah to come, the Lamb of God that John the Baptist would speak of. But Joshua, who succeeded Moses, he ended up taking the tabernacle into the promised land, and for a while they had no temple. They continued to use the tabernacle. God gave Joshua victory over his enemies, and then later, after Joshua, and you have other judges, all the way Samuel becomes the last judge of Israel. Then you have King Saul, who the people chose, and you have David, whom God chose. And so King David uh, is God's chosen king, of, and that's the line that Jesus will come through. David wanted to build God a temple. David was a man uh, that God used in mighty battles, but he was also a man who wrote much of the Psalms, and he had a desire to build the temple, and God told David, you can't because you've shed a lot of blood. Now David might have said, but you helped me win those battles. I mean, I don't understand. You know, I, I wouldn't even have won them had you not helped. You gave me the sword to chop Goliath's head off. So he doesn't say that. I'm just thinking uh, he might have wondered. I don't understand. I, I did what you asked me to do. And God's like, it doesn't matter. You're not the guy. I'm and your son Solomon is the one I'm shooting. Now, God doesn't have to give us. He truly can say like your parents because I said so. Right? That's just the way it is sometimes because I said so. And so, but he, he didn't just say, it. he gave an answer. You, you shed too much blood. And like, okay, all right. So Solomon builds in the temple and it, now, and it was facing east towards the Mount of Olives. And then we move on. In verse 48, 
However, the Most High does not dwell. So he's, he's getting to this point of the temple, which the temple's a big, big deal to the synagogue of the freedmen, to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the Sanhedrin. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. The prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? In other words, God's like, even the stones you use, my hand's made. What do you mean you're building me something? It's an interesting thing. God let the temple be built, but he's also saying, even though you built it, I didn't need it. I did it for you to kind of see and understand more of my holiness, and there's a lot of other things that we can't touch on today. But, but just as God never wanted Israel to live for the law, he wanted them to live their lives for the giver of the law. Make sense? Not for the law, but the lawgiver. What's one of Jesus' names is the lawgiver. But he also didn't want Israel to worship a building. Guess what they were doing by the time Stephen is on the scene? They not only worshiped the temple, they swore by the temple. Jesus even talked to them about it. They swore by the temple. They loved the temple. They worshiped the building. They ended up worshiping Israel, the, the, um, the bronze serpent that uh, that Moses had to raise up. They were not supposed to work. And sure enough, they ended up worshiping the bronze serpent. He didn't want Israel worshiping a building, but in essence, many did. And this is a big problem because Stephen had already been accused of saying, he was talking about the ministry of Jesus, that the temple would be destroyed. Remember Jesus said his own body Speaking of it, he said, tear down this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. They were infuriated that Jesus was going to destroy the temple. They were saying that Stephen was trying to destroy the temple. When Israel turned to idolatry, it says in Ezekiel 10.18, it's up on the screen, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. God left his own instructed building. Why? As a sign to them that they had stopped worshiping him. God chose because of his mercy, which is why he rested at the mercy seat, which is right there in the place where the Ark of the Covenant is at. He would rest at the mercy seat, but he would reside in the Holy of Holies. He would come down and reside in the temple, Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go once a year. But the reality is that it's impossible to build God a structure that fits his infinite glory. It was already written in Isaiah 66. That's what he's quoting is Isaiah 66. It says, how will you build me a home? I don't live in a house made with hands or human hands. Throne, uh, it says in Isaiah 66 that the throne of God is in heaven. Earth itself is just a footstool. Uh, I told the first service, earth is a tiny footstool, a super tiny footstool in the scheme of the universe, isn't it? Like there's bigger footstools than earth. I don't even know how that works. But it's just, a, it's just a picture that it's so small to God. It's just a place to rest his feet. Of course, he holds the whole universe in his hand. But they were deeply concerned about the temple being destroyed. They were deeply concerned that Stephen and the apostles and the early church was a threat to the building. They had totally forgotten that God had let the first temple, the one Solomon built, he had let that one be destroyed by Babylon. Didn't he not? Did he not? Didn't need to say it that way. Did he not? And the same was going to happen again when Rome was going to destroy it. So twice God was going to let his own, even though he ordained the temple, even though he let them build it, even though he would come and reside in the Holy of Holies, 
he would let it be destroyed twice. Obviously, there's no temple in Israel today. We'll talk about a little bit of this next week. They loved the building. They didn't love the builder. God himself, the one who had ordained the building. Pick it up with me, verse 51 and 52. Now, if you ever follow NASCAR, you've heard of a hard turn, right? Stephen's about to take a really hard turn here. I mean a hairpin turn. That would be not NASCAR. That would be uh, maybe Formula One or something like that. He takes a radical turn here. He goes from teaching to preaching. And it happens fast. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Clearly the teaching is over. The history lesson's over. Now I'm talking directly to your heart. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Stephen gives a massive spoonful of, spoonful of truth here. And they're not wanting it. Things that needed to be said, things that needed to be heard by the entire council, Stephen calls them stiff-necked. They would have been familiar with this term. It's in God refers to the children of Israel this way. In the Old Testament, God used the same exact words describing Israel. Up on the screen, Exodus 32, 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. So in other words, Stephen's saying, if you love the Old Testament and if you love to study it, you should be able to see yourselves there. You're stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, he said. Um, they follow the ceremonial laws to the letter. Circumcision, dietary laws, but their hearts were still covered by sin. Their ears were still closed to the God they claimed to worship. And he says, uh, you resist the Holy Spirit, always resist the Holy Spirit. Every time they resist, it was always the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God that's in the Holy Holies, that's who you're resisting. He said, you always resist the Spirit of God. And he goes on to say, in verse 52 and 53, um, the accusation here is quite clear, and it's quite true. They are like-minded with their fathers, who killed all the prophets who prophesied of the coming Messiah. They are following the footsteps of their forefathers that killed the prophets that prophesied of Jesus to come, such as Isaiah, who was sawn in two. The very prophets that, like Moses, foretold the coming of the just one. Now, when you see the just one, now you know that Stephen has gone from Abraham to Jesus. When he says the just one, he's speaking of Jesus. He's, he's made it from Abraham to Jesus here but even worse than their fathers, their fathers had killed the prophets that foretold of the Messiah. They were now guilty of actually killing the Messiah. Now, Jesus had only been back in heaven from the resurrection for a short period of time. This is still the early days of the church. The council, they were guilty of murdering the Son of God. The apostles have already made this case. Stephen said, in essence, the same exact thing. Remember, they would have already killed Stephen and John. I mean, Peter and John. They would have killed Peter and John already 
except for they were afraid of the people. Now the people have sided with the synagogue of the freedmen, so now they feel like they have impunity to do whatever they want. They do have impunity, but for a period of time, because someday they will answer to God who will not give them a free pass for killing his son. Not only that, rejecting. And they had the law. He said, uh, Stephen said, you got the law, but you've not kept it. If you really kept the law, you would understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Moving on, just for the sake of time, verse 54 through 56. Uh, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. These men are outraged, but not at their sin. They're outraged at Stephen. They hear all this truth and they say, We must kill the messenger. They don't want to hear it. Their hearts are cut with conviction, but not contrition. God doesn't want us just convicted. He wants us to be contrite, to be sorry for our sin. Now, we can't pay for our sin, but we can say, Lord, I'm sorry. Would you cover it? But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he looks up into heaven. He gazes up in heaven. I remember they're in a building. They're, in, uh, they're, they're where the council meets. For Stephen, he does not see this, the limestone roof. He just sees everything open up. He gets a sky-light view of not only doesn't matter the building, clouds, everything parts. He literally sees, he sees heaven from right there. That's impossible unless God does it, right? He literally sees heaven. He sees the very throne of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, not even sitting because Jesus normally is sitting there, but he's standing to welcome and showing his approval of the work Stephen's done. Remember Moses got angry and smashed the tablets? Stephen's got angry and says, you stiff-necked. There is a time, and the time will come even more when we need more prophet-type voices in this country to speak the truth and righteousness. But he's amazed at what he's seeing. He even says, look. Now they can't see what he's seeing. He says, look, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now God, they say they believe in. They don't believe in Jesus. They're infuriated that he's saying he can see the throne of God. Jesus, they already discounted. Last few verses, verse 57 through 60 as we bring it to a close. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped up their ears and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying Lord Jesus receive my spirit then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice Lord do not charge them with this sin. When he had said this he fell asleep. The accusers and the council, they simply can't take it anymore. They have to kill the messenger. They're, they're tired of hearing the message. The history lesson was fine. Yeah, we already know all that stuff. But when it got to them, they literally, like toddlers, they, not figuratively, they literally covered their ears. They gnashed at their teeth. They covered their ears. And they ran at him with one accord. They didn't agree on much, but they ran in unison. By the way, the world will galvanize around coming against Jesus. 
They might be fractured on this day or that day, but when it all comes down to it, they'll all join the Antichrist against Jesus, and they'll be in the same accord. They'll run in the same direction. Imagine on Judgment Day, and they're saying, God, we, we didn't know. God said, let me roll tape. You literally put your hands on your ears. I sent you another prophet, and you literally went like this. They laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was equally zealous to the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, Saul's going to appear later. We do believe that Saul was impacted by this day. Would you not agree? He will never forget this day. Was, was that true, what he was saying? Am I stiff-necked? Am I uncircumcised in heart? I mean, you can imagine just mulling this around for the next couple of months or years or whatever it might have been. And in verse 59, Stephen, knowing his life and ministry is complete, he says, Jesus, receive my spirit. How, who does that sound like? On the cross, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Stephen had become conformed more and more and more to the image of Jesus. He was actually talking the same words of the Savior. He says, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus said that. And then he says, lay not this sin to their charge. By the way, we know that Stephen goes immediately to heaven. Come back to that thought in just a moment because he says, receive my spirit. We know Jesus is standing, looking at him, welcoming him. But notice Stephen orderly and reverently does what? It says, then he knelt down. Remember I talked about our kneeling for prayer? He did not get crumbled down by the stones. He, of his own accord, before the stones killed him, he knelt down to worship God. And it's just struck me as I was studying this week. If he can kneel to pray, I mean, if he can kneel to die, certainly we can kneel to pray. Amen? Amen. He literally kneeled down to worship. And I was like, Lord's like, even if some visitor comes in and thinks, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen, I never come back here, fine. Every knee's going to bow one day. We're just practicing. Amen? He knelt down to worship. And he, and he was praying, too, because he's actually talking to, to the Lord as well. He's worshiping. He's praying. Uh, isn't it great that all he saw was, he, I don't even know if he felt the stones, because his, his eyes were so fixed on Jesus. What a culmination to his mighty message, similar to Jesus. I said, lay not this sin to their charge. But if you're taking notes, I want to just give you three things real quick as we wrap this up. And... Um, and I, I'm sorry, worship team, we might even have to close it. Um, three things. He says, or maybe I'll have you come to one stanza. But anyway, he says, in his last message he'll ever get on the earth, it really speaks to me that we see three things in Stephen's life. His consecration, his courage, and his compassion. All not in competition with one another. His consecration, he's like, Lord, if you want me to preach this message, I'll preach it. His courage, if you want me to say this, it'll probably cost me my life, I'll say it. His compassion, the very men that are stoning him, lay not the sin of their charge. You and I would be like, I hope they die. <laughs> I hope someone stones them. Many, by the way, if you're trying to live a completely safe life, safe of anything. You don't need courage if you're just trying to make sure that your life is 100% safe. 
The apostles didn't live that way. Stephen didn't live that way. The church isn't called to live that way. We are commanded in Scripture to be strong and courageous. Not easy to do. You have to have the help of the Lord. If, you, if there's no such thing as fear, you don't even need courage. But because there is such thing as fear, you absolutely need courage. You have to take courage. You have to take courage from the Lord. Um, we, by nature, our flesh, especially in modern-day America, we crave comfort, convenience, and a carefree life. None of which the Bible ever promises. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Old Testament and New Testament, we are called to consecrate our lives, to have courage, and not to be hateful for people that hate us, but to have compassion. Lastly, his body falls asleep. It's not his spirit that falls asleep. He says, receive my spirit. His body falls asleep. He'll get a new body someday. We talked about that a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 5. He'll immediately be with Jesus because the believer never dies. But what a man used of God. What a message that speaks us 2,000 years later. Sadly, there were some that day that were determined to reject, but Stephen was determined to receive from Jesus his eternal reward, and that's where he is now. How about us? Are we resisting or are we receiving from the Lord? That's our question. I am going to uh, just forego. I, they have an awesome closing song, and I apologize, Tawan, your song. I love it, but I just want to speak to our hearts for just one moment, and we'll close in prayer. Um, I told the first service, um, and it, it wasn't in my notes, it just came to me. Uh, you know, I use sports analogies. I, I apologize for that sometimes, but it's just in me. Um, Stephen, they thought they had destroyed him. But in essence, the World Series is coming up soon. Stephen had a walk-off home run. That, and I just think, I, it came to me, I almost broke down the first service. It came to me as Stephen is up to bat, and it's his last hurrah. And you can imagine, as he enters into heaven, the first to see, first he's going to see Jesus. And he's going to, I don't know what Jesus is going to do, whether he wraps his arms around him, whether he falls at Jesus' feet. But then I also think the rest of the team shows up. Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon. Everyone he talked about would be there to do at the home plate, give a gigantic group hug, say, well done. Isn't that amazing? And here's the thing. What are you living for? Stephen would speak to the American church. What in the world are you living for? We're actually talking what in the world's going on. What are we living for? Why don't you stand as we close in prayer? Please save that worship song. Uh, <laughs> I feel bad, but I also know this was the Lord's doing. So, you know, his word, sometimes he just wants us to just chew on what he said. Amen? Amen. Maybe that's today. So, Father, we come before you. We're grateful that your word is so powerful, that your word is so true. Uh, Lord, the council needed to hear it, but we need to hear it. Even if we already know you, Lord, we, we want to know those areas we're resisting you where we're seeking comfort instead of courage, where we're seeking complacency instead of consecration. Lord, where we lack compassion. You were, you were compassionate on the multitude. You saw that the fields were white into harvest. Sometimes we ride right past the harvest and don't even notice that those are souls that you care about. 
So, Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts. We wouldn't want to just read about one of your servants. And we read about a multitude, from Joseph to Moses to David to Stephen. Lord, these men were not perfect, but they all heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And, Lord, we want to hear that as well. And so we pray, Lord, that you would stir us. And, Lord, in this room, that we would all fully surrender our lives as best we can. You would continue to refine us and shape us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up, our, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. If you need prayer, we have some men over here in the corner. We'd love to pray with you. If you have any questions, have a great rest of the day. See you Wednesday at the festival.